This morning, we'll be considering an issue um, we have considered before, taking a brief break from that long series that I'm in. Uh, Just this week, I want you to consider with me the fact that man, mankind, male, female, um, exists in one of four conditions. Some of you know the 18th century Scottish Presbyterian named Thomas Boston. He has a famous book called The Fourfold State of Man. Scripture teaches us that mankind existed in an initial created state, Adam and Eve. They're the only ones that enjoyed that first state. We'll call it the garden state. And then um, they fell into sin. So the second state of existence, that's what that means, condition in which mankind exists, is the state of guilt. So we have two Gs. By the way, my wife helped me with the first G on the way here. You have the garden state. You have the guilt state. You have the grace state. You can exist on this earth as a man or a woman in the state or in a condition where grace has been given to you. We'll look at that. And then there's the the state of glory for the saints or the state of doom for unbelievers. So scripture teaches this fourfold state of man. And I'm here to tell you, none of us are in the garden state. None of us are in glory. We are either in guilt or grace. Two options for all my hearers this morning. Are you in a state of guilt before God, or are you in the state of grace before God? So let's look briefly at each state. Scripture teaches in various ways these four states. The state of innocence, we might call the garden state. The created state, man was created upright. Ecclesiastes 7.29, behold, Solomon says, I have found only this, that God made men upright. You've heard me say this before. It doesn't mean necessarily standing up on two feet. Um, Though I suppose that's how they were created. It means morally upright. It means with original integrity or original righteousness. They were innocent. They weren't guilty. They weren't violators of the law of God by virtue of their creation. They were made male and female. They were sinless at the time of their creation. We read in Colossians 3.10, which is a book in the Bible that's found in the New Testament. But it says this in chapter 3, verse 10, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. So this is the language of renewal. So he's talking to people who are actually in the state of grace. And he says, you have put on this new self or new man who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Okay, so this is the language of renewal, but notice this renewal is according to the image of the one who created him, which implies there's something wrong with us that needs to be renewed according to the image of the one that created us. So he's talking about this renovation of souls 
And we know from Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 27, that God made man male and female in his own image. So being made in the image of God included possessing true knowledge of God. So Paul implies that in Colossians 3.10, because if the renewal is to a true knowledge, then we must have lost that true knowledge. But this renewal is according to the image of the one who created us, according to the image of the one who created us, therefore he must have created us originally in the garden state with true knowledge. Adam and Eve were innocent, and the knowledge they possessed was true knowledge, not distorted knowledge, not mangled knowledge, not suppressed knowledge, like Romans 1 teaches that all uh, men do with the knowledge of God that they possess. They suppress it unrighteously. Adam and Eve didn't do that. Now, Adam and Eve came to do that, but by virtue of their creation in itself, they were morally upright. They were innocent. They were stocked, we might say, with the true knowledge of God. They were, they were made perfect, which in the old 17th century language means mature. Adam was created and Eve was created as mature male and female. They didn't go through all the phases of human existence, for instance, that we go through. That's why, by the way, because we sinned in all the phases we have existed in, that's why the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam, didn't appear on the earth as a perfect or mature adult, but he went through all the phases of human existence to to sanctify them because we had polluted them. But they were made uh, with no polluting factors within them. No absence of anything that God uh, made them with, and no presence of foul odors, we might say. But that all changed, which leads us from the state, the garden state, to the state of guilt, or the fallen state, um, which we read about in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, 15, 16, and 17, we read these words, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So one no-no. Here it is. Don't eat from that tree. It's a test uh, for Adam. But we know that they ate it, and we know that they died. They ate from it, and they died. If you keep reading in Genesis 3, you'll find that. Now, did they die uh, physically? That is, were their souls separated from their bodies when they ate from it? No. That happened later. So they didn't die in that sense. Were they put in, put to hell, put in hell as soon as they ate from it? No, so they didn't die in that sense, uh, the eternal death. Um, did they become guilty? Yes. Did God ju- justly, um, inflict judgment upon them and they became morally corrupt? And the answer is yes. So their death 
initially was a spiritual death, we might say. They became corrupt by virtue of, I think, the judgment of God upon them. He threatened them, the day that you shall you eat from it, you shall surely die. Therefore, when they ate, they died. But they didn't die in all senses. They died first. They had no communion with God. They became lost, we could say. They're living in God's world apart from having special communion with him. But they also became polluted in their nature. Paul reminds believers of this in Ephesians chapter 2. You know how sometimes we use Ephesians chapter 2, dead and trespasses and sins, to prove um, total depravity because we're going to be good reformed Christians and we're going to argue all five points of those five points and we're going to use Ephesians for this. That's not why Paul wrote it. Paul wrote Ephesians 2 to remind Christians where they were when they were lost and the power of God that was executed within them to get them from guilt to grace. But it reminds us of the state of of all men. So either you're in guilt or grace as you're hearing me. Here's what Paul tells Christians they used to be like. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins... So remember, he's writing to believers. So he wants them to contemplate the past. Here here I was, an unbeliever, dead in my trespasses and sins, in which I formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, So I'm addressing, as far as I can tell, mostly believers. That was you. That was me back in the day before grace came. So we were guilty, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, this is certainly not the the state or condition in which Adam and Eve were created. So this uh, this is way different. This is the state or condition that we were actually born into. It is the state or condition that all are born into, the state of sin, the state of guilt. We are born guilty sinners, all of us, polluted sinners, all of us. How do you like that? You got up this morning, took your shower, hopefully you brushed your teeth, got all cleaned up, got your coffee, got your water, drove over here, and the pastor says, polluted. <laughs> you got problems. Guilty. Uh under the just liability of divine punishment. That's what guilt means. Not just, I feel bad, you know, like one of our kids, my heart's beeping, that means they sinned. Um, not just subjectively, but really and objectively, you have violated the law of God, and God could punish you on the spot. You were like that as, a, as an unbeliever believer. You were, you were the walking dead, Walking, guilty, polluted, stained sinner, justly, God could have destroyed you. But he didn't. Uh, You know, Paul goes on to say, in verse 4, you know those wonderful words? But God. So So now Paul's transitioning from the state of guilt, which all unbelievers are in, and all believers were in, to the state of grace. So that 
leads us to the third state, uh, the second option for everybody hearing my voice. Either you're in the state of guilt or you're in the state of grace, or we might call this the renovated state, the renewed state, the new state of new creation. Uh, we'll look at a text that actually uses that language. But here we have Ephesians 2, 4, 2, 4, but God. So that, that horrible picture in verses 1 through 3 that, by the way, doesn't only describe your unconverted neighbor. It describes you when you were unconverted as well. So the difference between you unconverted and you converted is not you, it's God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So see the transition from the state of guilt to the state of grace, just as the state of um, the garden came by virtue of God's creation, and our existence comes by God's creative handiwork. So we have a form of creation, new creation, when we talk about the state of grace. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us. That is God. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So if you want to get from guilt to grace, it isn't by doing. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You know, people sometimes say this, he's a good Christian. Or she's a good Christian. And what they usually mean by, they do good or right things. But if they're actually a good Christian, they'll say, look, I might do good or right things, but that's not the basis of my salvation. I do what I do. I live the way I live out of a great, great, grateful heart. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Remember Paul in Ephesians? Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, regeneration, remember I said new creation, this is renovation, renew and renewing, by the Holy Spirit. That's Titus 3, 5. Very clearly, this state of grace is not an earned or merited state for those who are in it. Both of these texts and many others indicate that to go from the state of guilt to the state of grace, divine intervention is necessary. You know that divine intervention caused you, if you're in the state of grace, to be in the state of grace. God interrupted your life, didn't he? God got in there and said, you're mine. <laughs> and he, and he, he didn't drag you in kicking and screaming, though, did he? Uh, he made you willing by his grace. And you came most freely. None of us who have come to Christ, we, okay, I'm coming. I'm getting effectually called now. I'm coming, but it's against my will. I don't want to come to Jesus. 
Why did you come to Jesus? Because God was tinkering inside of you, and at some point, you just believed. And then you figured out how it all happened later. It's an act of grace. It's divine intervention. Aren't you glad Christianity is not a deistic religion? Because it'd be a contradiction. You know, deism, the old deism. Yes, there is a creator. We call him God. But he just made things. He put things in order, and then it all just naturally works out. And then when all the dust is cleared and history has reached its end, then God comes back and cleans it all up or whatever. No divine intervention, in other words. No divine providence. Creation, yes. Something at the end of time, yes. But in the meantime, no God in the world. If that's true, and it is true that Adam and Eve had this gardenic state of existence, okay, and then we're in the guilty state of existence, we can't get from guilt to grace. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. We can't obey our way out of guilt into grace. We can't repent our way out of guilt into grace. We have to be brought from a guilty state and renewed and ushered into this gracious state. You must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus and chided him for not realizing that the Old Testament itself actually taught that doctrine. So this, is, this, this second state, or third state, of grace is a state of creation itself, new creation in Christ Jesus. So just as man's first state of existence was a creation, so the state of grace is a New creation. There's an old creation. There's new creation. Old creation initially, gardenic. Old creation subsequent to the fall, guilt. New creation by grace. You know the text. When you're a new believer, a lot of times you, you memorize. Isn't that sad when you're a new believer, you memorize a lot of verses, and then when you get old, you... Stop memorizing verses. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Wasn't it one of your favorite back in the day? Remember? Some of you probably can't even remember that far back. When you got saved and everything was fresh and new, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's in, the, he's in this new creation realm of grace. He's not in the guilt stage anymore. Therefore, there's... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's a part of this new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So Paul actually uses the language of new creation. There's three states so far. Garden state, guilt state, grace state. None of us are in the garden state. None of us are in the glorified state. We're either in the guilty state or the gracious state. So my question to you, my hearers, is which state are you in? You don't say, well, I'm in California. We already knew that. I mean condition. What is the condition of your soul this morning? Are you a guilty sinner outside of Christ 
breathing God's air, justly under his condemnation, but not being presently and fully dealt with by God's justice. Or are you in Christ? So there's a final state. If somebody comes up with another G, I'd be happy to alter my notes. The state of glory or doom. So I need another G for the doom thing. The state of glory or whatever. The eternal state. Okay, the fixed state. Our created state wasn't a fixed state of existence, right? How do we know? None of us are like Adam and Eve, sinless image bearers. They, their state of existence could be changed. They sinned. God judged them. The guilty state isn't a fixed state, at least not for all, because some are transitioned by the mercy of God into the state of grace. The state of grace, is that a changeable condition? Can you be in the hand of the Son and in the hand of the Father and then be out of the saving hand of God? Better be no. Yeah. Who said it? I don't know who said it first, but uh, if we could jump out, we would have already. But Jesus says it's, it's impossible. No one can pluck them out of my hand. No one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. So in, in that sense, the state of grace is not a changeable state. You don't go become a Christian and then go to hell. Okay, The incarnate Son of God assumed our nature, our duties, our liabilities in order to bring those given to him by the Father to glory. And he loses none of them, as, he, as he's promised us. So we have a state of glory or doom that is actually an unchangeable state. It's a fixed state of existence. That's why you want to make sure before you die... You get out of great guilt and you get into grace. Because once we die, it's either glory or doom. Those are the two options. We hear this. Matter of fact, both of these states in a text by Paul, I'm going to read it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Here are these words. Here, let me be spurgeonic. Let me ask the question again, my dear ears. Are you under guilt or under grace? Which state are you in? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes. Now here's the transition. To be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. 
So you can see both states there, the state of glory at the, toward the end and the state of gloom as well. Second Peter is another text that speaks about this fixed state of existence that awaits our future in second Thessal- uh, Peter, excuse me, chapter 3, verses 3, 12 and 13, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So here, believers in Christ are described as those looking for a much better state of existence. New heavens and new earth in which, we could say, only righteousness dwells. No sin, no sorrow, no backslidings, no valleys, all peaks. What in the world is that going to be like? (laughs) New heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. No stealing, no idolatry, no no using our time wrongly, no lusts, no covetousness. A world of love and, and acceptance and belonging. And we hear about this again in Hebrews his state of glory. Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, God, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for him, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That's an interesting one. So God, through the incarnation, brings the mediator between God and man to a point of perfection through sufferings and all that because he's going to bring many sons to glory. Not that he might, perchance, bring many sons to glory, but that he is doing this. He's going to bring many sons to glory. And you know, if God is doing this through the incarnate son, bringing many sons to glory, who's going to stop him? Against all odds and all enemies, God will bring his sons to glory, to a glorified state of existence, body and soul. No guilt, no pollution. Kind of like our first week of marriage, honey. No pollution. Nope, not like our first week of marriage. No pollution of soul. Or body. You realize our, our bodies are, some of our bodies are worse than others, right? I'm including myself. Our bodies are, we got problems. One of us has a cane. Some of us will have canes in the future. Some of us have to use hearing devices. We don't know if this will happen, but some of us might get cancer. We know this much, unless the Lord comes, we're all going to stop breathing someday. 
We're going to have aches and pains. By the way, you wear glasses. Will there be glasses in the eternal state? No. What will it be like? I hasn't seen, neither ear or heard, all that the Lord has in store for those who love him. Okay? We can't, I mean, we can compare it because it is called creation, new creation, right? New heavens, new earth. So we can say, okay, it's going to be like, but we have to say it's also going to be not like. It's going to actually be better than the garden state. Not New Jersey. Well, it's going to be better in New Jersey, too, because I think New Jersey is the garden state. It's going to be better than Adam and Eve's created state. Certainly better than the guilty state, and even better than the state of grace now. Our best life, as believers, is not now. Burn the book, right? Our best life is then. Glory. Fixed state of righteousness. Integrity of soul and body. No corroding elements in the new creation. No poison. No snake. At least like that one. Tempting. There's another state, though. That's the one I don't have a G for. And maybe it's good that I don't have a G for. The state of doom. The opposite of glory is not non-existence. Then I saw a great white throne. This is Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And they saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. You don't want this to happen to you. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Isn't that interesting? The sea gave up the dead in which, uh, dead which were in it. I don't know how long it takes for flesh to decay, in the sea, but it happens, right? The flesh doesn't maintain its integrity when it gets thrown overboard and somebody dies. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, which means there must be a resurrection of the unjust as well. There's a resurrection of the just, Jesus taught, Jesus also taught the resurrection of the unjust. So even bodies that were in the sea and dissolved and went all over the possibly the world, somehow, some way, by the power of God, are going to be put back together and stand before God, and they're going to be judged based on their deeds. You don't want this to happen. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the saints are all cheering now. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the state of doom and gloom. There's the word. Thank you. The state of doom and gloom. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Uh, Jesus spoke about hell a lot in the gospel accounts. So those are the four states, garden, guilt, grace, glory, glory slash 
gloom. You can only be in one of two. You can't be in the garden state, and you're not in the glory or gloom state. You're either guilt or grace. Those are your two options. Now, what I'd like to do briefly, yeah, right, is to contemplate, just to dig a little deeper on the things that have been said. So first of all, we see here the lofty state in which our race first appeared on the earth. That was the, that's the garden state. Morally upright, stocked with true knowledge, an unpolluted soul, uncorrupted bodies, no corruption, and no seeds of corruption. It's like, it's hard to think about that. But corruptible. So, garden is not as good as glory. The second contemplation. See here, the terrible consequences of the first sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. Was that only true of the people that Paul was writing to in Ephesians chapter 2? No. It's true of all Christians, in terms of their past existence, dead in trespasses and sins. It's true of all unbelievers throughout the world at all times. Was it true of Adam and Eve upon their fall into sin? Dead in trespasses and sins. The answer is yes. Here's the psalmist. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This Original sin is the guilt and the pollution of our first parents that somehow, some way gets to us as well. It gets to everyone who comes into this world by ordinary generation, human father and human mother. Is there a a very man that has existed on the face of this earth that came not by virtue of ordinary generation, but yet was still a man? You can't use Adam or Eve as an example because they are examples of this, but who, who am I thinking of? I'm thinking of the Lord Jesus, right? Everybody that's ordinarily generated, human father, human mother, has this thing we call the original sin. It's very, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, one of the dark messages that Christianity has, but it's very real, isn't it? I mean, you look out in the world, is it hard to prove total depravity and that uh, men are guilty of violating God's law? It's not very hard. Is it very hard to conclude we're not in the same condition that our first parents were in? They, got into the condition we're in, but they weren't made in the condition we're in. One of the daily testimonies of that reality is the fact that there are funerals. Death is not a natural endowment upon the creature in the garden. It is as a result of sin. It's very unnatural, and that's one of the reasons why it stings stings so much. A third contemplation is, see here the marvelous grace of God in the sending of his son in order to renovate that which had been spoiled by sin. This is the the wonderful part of the gospel, is the, the dark backdrop of the fall into sin. 
doesn't um, cause God to give up on his creatures. It causes God to send his son to fix them. This is all by grace. Um, our Lord uh, was very man. Our Lord did not descend from Adam by ordinary generation. His generation in the womb of Mary was a very unique act of God. But nonetheless, flesh, body and soul, was generated in the womb. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Our Lord is not only very man, but he is also, we could call a new Adam, or just like Paul calls him, the last Adam. What does that mean? It means he's a public person. What does that mean? He walked around in public? No. He represented others, our public representative. We still use the language there. Somebody who represents us in a governmental seat. This one is the last Adam. Just as the first Adam represented the entire human race, and as he went, so we went, so this last Adam represents a new race of men and women, boys and girls, and as he goes, so we go. If he beats death, we beat death. If he beats the tomb, we beat the tomb. Whatever God does to him for our benefit, we get. God raises him from the dead, boom, we're going to be raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead, therefore we're going to be raised from the dead. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which, by the way, makes the resurrection pretty important, doesn't it? It's a core essential element of an orthodox profession of the gospel itself. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then God's a liar and we're fools. So our Lord represents a distinct race of men identified by Scripture as those given to the Son by the Father, sometimes the elect, the sheep. The grace of God then sends the eternal Son of God to make God's enemies into recreated sons of God and to bring them ultimately to the fixed state of glory. This is all by grace. The Son assumes our nature to offer obedience and suffer the punishment due to us. Did he, did he have to? Like, is there some power outside or above God forcing God to do this? No, it's God doing it. For God, why did he send the Son? Love. For God... So loved that he gave. State of existence our Lord endows upon those given to him by the Father is actually better than Adam's created state. And we could even say being under the state of grace in one sense is even better than Adam's created state because Adam could fall out of that state and we can't fall out of grace even though sometimes we do a good job trying to. So as wonderful as Adam's created state was, it could be and was lost. This is not the case with the state of grace and certainly not the case of the state of glory. And it's not the state and the case with reference to the state of gloom either. You can't fall out of the state of gloom and doom.
Adam's created state was not a state in which he would be brought to glory. Or he was brought, he would be brought to glory. It was a state in which he could and did fall short of glory, but it wasn't glory. It wasn't glory. He fell short of glory. For all of sin to fall short of the glory of God, a glorious state of existence, better than our created state. So we can say this, being in Christ is better than being in Adam, or it's actually better than being Adam himself, and better than being in Adam prior to his fall into sin. Being in Christ ensures you will be brought to glory. So we could put it this way, once you are engraced by Christ, you're always engraced by Christ. It doesn't like, it's not like you get grace from Christ, you get engraced, God endows grace upon you, forgives you of your sins, you know, all that. And then he, and then he says, now do the rest yourself. And if you lose the grace, tough, tough pudding, buddy, or whatever the statement is. And if that's not a statement, I just made it up. But you know what I meant. God doesn't engrace us and then like release us to be on our own. And do the rest ourselves or something. Once in graced, always in graced. And then finally, see here the two ends to which we are all destined. Okay? The, the, the fixed state of either glory or gloom. Doom. Two ends to which we're all going to end up. Now, if you'd like to read along with me, I'm just going to cite a hymn and then pray. It's hymn number 241. We're not going to sing it. But listen to these words. It talks about the two ends to which all are heading. 241, day of judgment, day of wonders. Hark, the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. Those are, those are serious words. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. The thing I wanted most never to happen has happened. The trumpet has sounded. I've been summonsed by a power that can effectually summons me, even though I don't want to stand before him. See the judge, our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine, gracious Savior. Own me in that day as thine. At his call, the dead awaken, Rise to life from earth and sea, all the power of nature shaken by his looks. Prepare to flee, careless sinner. What will then become of thee? Now, aren't you glad the hymn didn't end there? You get a breath of fresh air if you're a believer. But to those, and even if you're an unbeliever, here's your only hope. But to those who have confessed Loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near ye blessed. See the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know. Sobering words, encouraging words, depending on 
if you're in the state of guilt or in the state of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can do surveys like this. We pray that if we're in the state of grace, you'd melt our hearts, make us humbler. You'd uh, cast us all our pride out of us. Make us more and more grateful. If we're in the state of guilt, oh Lord, we pray for those that are in the state of guilt. If there are any hearing my voice now, that you would grant them eyes to see and ears to hear that repentance and faith would be theirs born in their hearts by grace but exercised by them by your grace as well thank you for this time pray your blessings on it in jesus name amen